It's so good to be with you, um, so exciting. My wife and I pulled into the parking lot this morning, and my wife is here. Rhonda is right back there, if you haven't met Rhonda. Rose, it's so good to see you. I look for Wyatt downstairs. I haven't gotten to see him yet, but I want to today before I go. So, I remember, like two years ago, we were in this building. Randall Road Baptist Church was still meeting here. Is my timing right, two years ago? And uh, um, we were meeting with Randall Road Baptist Church that morning. Ben and Rose were here. And I remember those guys, those two and others, walking up and down the aisles of this building and talking to the people at Randall Road about what God was going to do, what God might do in this place. And uh, the Lord led that congregation as they realized it was time for them to kind of end their church led that congregation to give the building. Actually, they gave it to the association so that we could hold it until you were ready for it. And uh, today, look at what God has done. I mean, this is is exciting. This is uh, remarkable. Cars all over the place outside. You got to figure out where you're going to park. Am I going to be able to get out if I park here? Um, Really, really good. And you, you come together Sunday by Sunday to do what you just did to sing songs of praise to the Lord and to pray, to read the word of God, to remember and to reflect on what God's word says, to confess sin and to repent. You come together to do that. And Christine, just like you talked about, their churches, did you know, this is from the did you know file, did you know that all around the world on Sunday mornings, people just like you gather together to do these same things? Did you know that? They do it all over the world. Sometimes we think it's, we don't think it, but we get in this, uh, this mindset that says we're the ones doing this, and we don't stop and realize people are doing this all over the world. And from the Did You Know file, did you know they've been doing it for centuries? This isn't something new we came up with. Church, gathering God's people together to read the word of God and to pray and to look to the Lord and to sing songs of praise. This is not an idea that preachers came up with so that they have a place to preach. Church is not a preacher's idea. It's not something we decided on. This is God's plan for God's people to come together on God's day to be encouraged. Now, I say that not because you don't know it, but because we need to be reminded of it because when we forget why we do what we do, we tend to drift away from doing it. And so I just want to remind us today that what we're doing is not, it's not new to us, and we don't do it, you know, sometimes you think about church attendance or spiritual disciplines as being this legalistic thing you have to do, that's the wrong way to think about it. We don't do it because it's a law, we do it because it's a way that helps us walk with God with clean hands in a pure heart. It's a way that as we gather together and we hear what God has to say about who he is and who we are, um, God makes us humble. This is a good thing that you're doing. And I'm so thankful that God is doing this good work here and he's given you such uh, a good pastor and wife and uh, just how God is blessing in this place. It's, It's remarkable. Now, I know you've been working your way through the book of Nehemiah. You're talking about um, uh, what God did in the book of Nehemiah, and I want to continue that work today by looking at Nehemiah chapter 9. So 
uh, take a look at Nehemiah chapter 9, you already, as you've worked your way through the, Neo, the book of Nehemiah, have talked about the call of God on this man named Nehemiah to come and to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild the wall. But I hope you also have realized that God's call on Nehemiah and God's call on his people is not, was not just to rebuild a wall, it was to restore a people. It was to restore a covenant. And, and we're going to talk about that today. You've already, as you work through the book of Nehemiah, not only talked about God's call upon this man named Nehemiah, but about God's provision for him and how God provided in the building of that wall. You've talked about the work of these people participating together. I saw your encouragement this morning to get involved and to serve. All the people in, in Jerusalem were serving, some with better attitudes than others, but they were serving together. You've talked about the opposition to Nehemiah, some of that from outside, some of that from inside. All those things were going on. And so you get to Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15, and it says, So the wall was finished in 52 days. If the purpose of the book of Nehemiah was to tell us about the rebuilding of the wall, the book of Nehemiah would end in chapter 6, but it doesn't. Because God is concerned about more than just the, the building of this wall. God's desire for his people and Nehemiah's vision for this city was for more than just building the wall. It was God's desire to call his people back unto himself. It was God's desire to bring about restoration. So even after the wall was finished, the work was not done. In Nehemiah chapter 8, the word of God is brought forth. Ezra reads the word of the Lord to the people of God. And the people respond. Nehemiah 8 verse 3. The people respond by weeping. And Nehemiah and Ezra say to the people, that's not what this time is for. The people, when they heard the word of God, they were convicted of the sin and, and, and they began to weep. But look at what Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 9 says. It says, Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to the people, this, is, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, send portions to everyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our God, and do not be grieved for, I love this phrase, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So when the people first heard the word of God, they wanted to repent. And Ezra said, nope, not time for that. It's time for celebrating. Nehemiah chapter 8. Ezra reads the word of the law to the Lord, uh, to the people again. Chapter 8, verse 13. There's this second reading of the book of the law. And uh, it says in verse 13, On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it's written. So the second time the word of God is read to the people, they hear about this feast of tabernacles and they say, this is what we're supposed to do. And so they, they celebrate the feast of tabernacles. It was a time when people were reminded of God's provision for his people. Uh, during their wilderness wanderings. So, 
first reading of the law, people wanted to weep. Ezra said, no, it's not time to weep, it's time to celebrate. Second reading of the law, people heard about the Feast of Tabernacles, and they said, let's celebrate this, and they did. Nehemiah chapter 9, our text for today, is the third reading of the law. The book of the law is read again. But on this occasion, when it's read, it is a time of confession and repentance. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1. On the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. It's a time of repentance. The Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sin and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. And there were other leaders, Levites, who helped them in this time of worship. And these Levites said to them, stand up. They said, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. So now, at this third reading of the law, the people are confessing their sin. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 5. I'm sorry, verse 6, begins a prayer. We think it's a prayer by Ezra. And Ezra prays this wonderful prayer. If you've read this prayer, you know it sounds like it ought to be in Psalms. I mean, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Sounds like this ought to be in Psalms, but it's in Nehemiah. And here there is this prayer that sounds like a prayer that ought to be in Psalms, but it's in Nehemiah. And he prays and he rehearses a lot of the history of God's people and how God's people have been blessed by God. We're going to walk through it. We're not going to read all of it, I don't think, but we're going to walk through it and see what he says here. Uh, notice how many times, there are really kind of two themes in this prayer. One of the themes is God gave you. And the second theme is, but you didn't handle it very well. <laughs> Anybody relate to that? I can. Look at what God did. Verse 6. You are the Lord, you alone. You've made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that's in it, the seas and all that's in them. And you preserve all of them. God is creator and God is sustainer. What's the response of the hosts of heaven, of all the angels of heaven? All the hosts of heaven worship you. You, verse 7, are the Lord, the God who chose Abram. You brought him out of Ur of Chaldees. You brought him and you gave to him the promise for this land. God, you gave to Abraham. Then he skips forward and he begins to talk about the people in Israel. I'm sorry, in Egypt, verse 9. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and you heard their cry at the Red Sea and you performed signs and wonders. What did God do for his people? He delivered them. He delivered them by all of the miraculous signs out of Egypt, all the plagues out of Egypt. He got them to the Red Sea. And what did God do at the Red Sea? You know this story. He parted the Red Sea and God's people went through. And when the Egyptians were pursuing them, the sea came in and destroyed all of them. God has done, Ezra is saying, God has done all of this for us. God, and he's not saying it just to the people. He's saying it first to God. God, we know you have done all these good things for us. You led them with a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night. Verse 13, you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws and good statutes and commandments. What did God give them? He gave them the law. 
Verse 15, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water to them from the rock. God provided for his people in the wilderness. Verse 16, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously. They presumed upon the grace of God and they stiffened their neck and they did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey. And we're not mindful of the wonders that you'd performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and they appointed a leader to return them to their slavery in Egypt. But you're a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. Look at verse 18. When they had made for themselves a golden calf, they said of this golden calf, this is our God who brought us out of Egypt. I mean, what a horrible thing to say to God after God had done all this. And then they make the golden calf and they say, the golden calf is what did it for us. What did God do? Verse 19, God didn't forsake them. God in his great mercy did not forsake them in the wilderness. Verse 20, he gave his good spirit to instruct them. He didn't withhold manna from their mouth, but gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years you sustained them, so they lacked nothing. Their clothes didn't wear out. Their feet didn't swell. And then God gave them kingdoms and peoples. The land of Shion and the land of Og. Verse 23, and you multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. And you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So their descendants went in. And they possessed the land. What was in this land? Verse 25, they captured fortified cities in a rich land. And they took possession of houses full of good things. They didn't have to build their own houses. There were houses already there, and the houses were already furnished. They took possessions of them. They didn't have to dig their own cisterns. The cisterns were dug or hewn, actually, into rock. Vineyards and olive orchards and fruit trees in abundance. This line at verse 25, last sentence, see what it says? So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted in themselves in your great goodness. What, what Ezra is saying here is they took all of what you gave them and they enjoyed it and it satisfied them and they became satisfied with the blessing of God but they didn't delight themselves in God there is a psalm psalms 106 verse 15 i love the way it's translated in the asv version here's what it says by the way psalms 106 is kind of the same kind of recounting of what god has done and in psalms 106 it says and he gave them their request he gave them what they asked for. But he, listen to this, he sent leanness into their soul. So let's soak a minute. Sometimes we get what we want from God. But after we get it, we find out we don't want what we get. We may get what we want, but we don't want what we get. You gave them what they asked for, God. And the end result was leanness for their soul. Verse 25. And then verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient. 
They rebelled against you. They cast your law behind their back. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them over into your enemy, into the hand of their enemies. And he begins to talk about, at the end of verse 27, it uses this word saviors, but it's talking about the judges. You know the story of the judges, how the people would, each man did what seemed right in his own eyes, and they rebelled against God, and they went through a time of suffering, and then God sent them a judge or a savior to come, a, 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 a warrior to come and free them, and they would live in a time of peace until they forgot God again, and it just cycle after cycle through the judges. He talks about how they repeat that cycle. Skip down to verse 30. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. God bore with them, but they would not listen. And so God gave them over. The northern kingdom to the Assyrians. The southern kingdom to the Babylonians. And they experienced the Babylonian captivity. And what Nehemiah is doing is he's coming back out of that captivity and bringing people with him. Some had already come to rebuild Jerusalem. And what Ezra is doing in this prayer is just recounting all of this. He's remembering all of this. And even though we rebel so much that you gave us to the Assyrians and to the Babylonians, verse 31, nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. God gave Abram a new name. God gave deliverance from Egyptian bondage. God gave the law. God gave manna. God gave mercy. God gave his spirit to instruct them. God gave victory over their enemies. God gave the promised land. God gave children. God gave houses full of good things. But God's people continued to rebel against God until God gave them over into the hands of their enemies. That's the historical part of the prayer. Verse 32, Ezra turns here. No longer is he recounting what God did in the past, but he's saying, now God, what will you do with us? Now therefore our God, the great and mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenants and steadfast love, let not all the hardship that we've been through seem as little to you. God, what we've been through has been really hard. It's been hard on all of our people. And I don't want you to forget that. God, I want you to know that what we've been through, it's been hard. Do you see the next line? Look at what the next line says. The next line says, yet, verse 33, what you have done has been righteous. You've been righteous in all that's come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. God, I've been through a hard time. And my hard time that I've been through is not because you are unfaithful, but because I've acted wickedly. That's what they're saying. That's what they're saying. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments, your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom, amid your great goodness that you gave them in the large and rich land that you set before them. They did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. 
So today, verse 36, in Ezra's day, he's saying, today, even though we're in this land that you gave us, we're not free here. We're slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruits and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And the rich yield of this land doesn't go to us, but it goes to the kings whom you've set over us. Why are they over us? Because of our sins. They rule over our bodies, over our livestock as they please. And we're in great distress. So what are they going to do? After all this prayer, what's going to be their conclusion? Last verse of this chapter. Because of all this, we've laid the foundation. We talked about what has happened because of all this. Ezra says, we're going to make a firm covenant with you in writing. On a sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Ezra said, I know we've done bad but you've been good. I know we've rebelled, but you've been faithful to give, to give, to give. And Lord, we want to obey you. And so we make a covenant with you today. And we write this covenant on a piece of paper, and we're signing it. And God, we're serious this time. We really mean what we're saying. We're going to keep this covenant. Had God's people ever made a covenant with him before? Lots of them. Lots of them. There's a covenant at creation. There's a covenant with Noah. Here's one you'll know well. The covenant at Mount Sinai. When Moses went up and he got the law and he brought it back down to the people, And he said, this is the book of Exodus, he said, here's the law. Here's what God says we're going to do. And you know what the people said? They said, what God has said we will do. Did they? You know, did they? No. They broke the covenant. They said, we mean it, God, we'll do it. But they didn't. So Ezra says, God, we've been through all this, and it's been really hard, and we've had some bad times, and we know it's our fault. God, this time we really mean it. We're going to keep this covenant, and everybody's going to sign it and say, yes, we're going to do it. Anybody peeked and read ahead in Nehemiah? I bet some of you have. Did they keep it? Did they? No. They did not. And so all these things happen at the end of the book of Nehemiah because the people did not keep the covenant. A couple of takeaways for us today. Some of you are thinking, where in the world is he going with this? I hope I'm going where God goes here. God's purpose in sending Nehemiah back to the city of Jerusalem was more than just the rebuilding of the wall. It was the rebuilding of a people. God's purpose then and God's purpose now is that his people be restored to a relationship with him. That they be reoriented to what is right and true. One means 
one way, one um, path, one discipline, one means by which we restore ourselves to God is what you're doing here today. Gathering for corporate worship. One means of restoring ourselves to God is to consistently gather with God's people to worship. It happened in the Old Testament. It happened in the New Testament. It happens today. So the book of Hebrews says, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, let us consider how to stir one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. What the writer of Hebrews is saying, what the Bible teaches us, is that there are these things that we can do that are means by which God moves us forward in our spiritual growth. One of those is regular corporate worship. I told you about three times when the people gathered, Nehemiah chapter 8 and chapter 9, they gathered together and they read the law and people responded to God. You're not, some of you may remember, I remember, when they used to give you a perfect attendance pin for going to Sunday school. Did you know they used to do that? Some of you think this is hokey. It was. <laughs> but we did it. And if you came to Sunday school every Sunday for the whole year, you got a perfect attendance pin. I remember somebody, I think it was a guy, who had this long string of pins. <laughs> and when he was out of town on vacation, he went to Sunday school. So that when he got back, he could give them a bulletin and say, I was in Sunday school, so keep my perfect attendance going. And he got this long pen. The problem was, as with all things, the problem was when the means became the end. Corporate worship is not the end, but it is a means by which God restores his people. Anybody walk perfectly with the Lord all through the week? This last week, just raise your, I can't put my hand up. Well, you can. You walk, per, no, no, none of us do. So God has given us some means by which to restore us. One of those is our regular personal time with God. But one of those is corporate worship. I think we see one of the lessons, one of the takeaways from this text is the importance of this corporate worship. It is. Corporate worship is a means to restoring brokenness together. Have you heard that phrase before? You're talking about that, right? Restore, corporate worship is a part of that. And your involvement in corporate worship really matters. Last point. God's people are restored through a covenant. But it's not the covenant of Nehemiah 9 or Exodus. In fact, in the book of Jeremiah, God said he was going to give us, he was going to establish a new covenant. And he was going to give us a new heart. He was going to write his law on our hearts. And Jesus, when he gathered with his disciples for that last supper, said this cup is a what? New covenant in my blood. Now, why is that important? It's important because all of us are no different than all the people of the Old Testament. 
we say to God, God, I know I said before I'm going to be really good, but this time I really mean it. I'm going to really try hard, and I'm going to be really good, and I'm going to, I'm going to obey you every day, all the way. I'm going to do it. It's like our New Year's resolution to God, but it never works. And God knew it would never work. Why? Because we're all sinners. We're sinners by nature, and we're sinners by choice. And every one of us, every one of us, knowing what is right to do, willfully choose against it. And so if our relationship with God is based on us keeping a covenant like this covenant of Nehemiah 9, we'll never be able to hold it. But I got good news. <laughs> I got good news. It's not based on that. It's based on the fact that he who was without sin, that's Jesus, became sin for us so that we might be right with God through him. You know this verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We don't have a relationship with God because we're good enough. We have a relationship with God because we trust in what Jesus has done to redeem us out of lostness and to bring us into a right relationship with him. Two takeaways take from this passage. One is corporate worship is really important. Not so you can get a perfect attendance pen, but because it helps us reorient ourselves, because it helps encourage us, and because our presence helps encourage others to be right and rightly oriented toward God. Second takeaway is don't try to get to God on your own. It won't ever work. It will never work. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the light. No one comes to the Father except through me. Our means to the Father is through trusting in Jesus as our Savior. Let me pray for you. Let me pray with you. Father, we confess today that we are guilty. We look at the sins of the people of Israel, and we recognize the same kind of rebellion in our own hearts we want to be our own god we want to make our own decisions we want the blessing of your hand and not the blessing of your face please forgive us and lord we come to you today so thankful that because of jesus we can have hope because of him we can have life because of him we can know you you are our hope and our salvation I thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in this place. I pray that you'd continue to work through these, your people, to lead many to know Jesus as Savior and as Lord. And I pray this in his name. Amen.